you would get decisions right every time, right? Wouldn't you? Um, and yet it's not like that. Things are confusing. We are scrolling through life at a breakneck pace going, yeah, I'll pay attention to that. No, I won't pay attention to that. Yeah, I'm interested in that. No, I'm not interested in that. I'll be offended by that. I'll be attracted to that. I'll ignore that. You're just constantly making decisions. And the disconcerting thing is that probably the most important components of your life right now, the work that you do, the city that you live in, maybe if you're married, the person you're married to, uh, various other big components of, of your life, if you really break those things down, the moment of decision, it was probably a series of quite small, innocuous decisions that set you up for where you are right now. The people who you are best friends with, who are in your life most, who influence you the most. I would put money on the fact that if you try to scroll back to how it is they became your friends, you didn't decide. I mean, the Bible says bad company corrupts good character. You know, we should really take our friends seriously. But you didn't make some big, wise, prayerful decision about being friends with the people you're friends with, did you? Like, it just kind of happened. And you chose to go to that bri, or you chose to engage in that event, and then that person happened to be there, and you chose to take them up on the offer of a dinner, even though normally we, we tend to be quite nervous about that sort of stuff. And friendships just sort of turned out the way they did. And those are a huge part of your life. Many of the decisions you're making constantly you're not even aware that you're making them. That's the terrifying thing. These are decisions that could have huge ramifications for your life, and you might not even be aware that you're busy making those decisions. So how do we do these well? If your life is essentially the sum of the decisions you've made, and that might be oversimplifying it a little bit, but if a big part of what your life is is the sum of the decisions you've made up until this point, how do we get them right in a world that is confusing and going at a breakneck pace? The church has helped us in the past. Um, the church very kindly, and I think to somebody's huge profit, uh, got little bits of fabric, stitched the words WWJD in there, and then sold them to all of us. Do you remember this? Um, what would Jesus do was what um, those letters referenced. And you were supposed to put that bangle on and then get life right from that moment onwards. And I, I remember it not really working out that way, partly because I kept catching the, the little buckle on stuff and it was filthy all the time. Um, but also because just going, well, what would Jesus do? I think that's a wonderful idea. The trouble is Jesus didn't have to choose which school to put his kids in. You do. It's not always easy. Jesus got himself into certain situations that you would actually have to be quite a lot like Jesus already to get yourself into those same decisions to then be able to make the what would Jesus do thing work out. I don't know if the logic of that follows, but you would have to see the world the way Jesus sees the world to get yourself into the situations where it's like, okay, now this lady is in front of me. Should I heal her? Shouldn't I heal her? Well, that's an easy one. What would Jesus do? He would heal her. But most of us are walking around not even noticing what's wrong, not even aware necessarily of what's going on inside people's hearts like Jesus was able to be aware of. Your decision, should I do business with this person or not with that person? It's sometimes not that neat and simple to just go, well, what would Jesus do? And I'm sympathetic to the fact that some of you in this room are probably not convinced that Jesus is necessarily your best role model. I think he is. Many Christians think he's an outstanding role model. But I'm sympathetic to the fact that some of you might be going, well, this ancient Galilean carpenter, is that the best filter for 21st century decision making? Or are there some other principles that we should apply? Um, and so we'd have to make a bit more of an argument than just going, what would Jesus do? Uh, the other way that the church has sometimes uh, helped us to get decision-making right, uh, and these are the, the Christians that I like hanging around the least, um, are the people that just go, yeah, well, I just, I just do what the Bible says. 
and it's quite clear that people who say that either haven't read much of the Bible or haven't had to make many decisions. Um, because just what would the Bible say? Once again, this is like a huge gift. Let's not for one moment downplay that Scripture is just the most valuable treasure we have. But as a means for making decisions, it's still quite tricky to know how to apply that. Exactly what you should do in this moment right now. Let me give you an example. You've all decided not to give away all you have to the poor, which is something the Bible suggests you do, which means at some point you've decided what standard of living your conscience and your relationship with God is okay with, and then how much over the top of that you want to be giving to good causes. Now, to just go, well, I just, I just do what the Bible says. It's like, you know, you're, you're being a bit condescending. You've, you've made some decisions in some other ways. Um, how did you get to that decision? What was going on inside you? And in fact, more troublingly with that statement, I don't think the Bible is ever intended as simply an instruction manual. What God is trying to achieve through Scripture is far more beautiful, far more subtle, far more complex than just giving you a set of do's and don'ts. He's trying to reveal his heart He's trying to expose your heart. And then, mysterious miracle of all, he's trying to change your heart through the process of Scripture. That's what the Bible's there to do. So, of course, there are all kinds of principles and instructions, but it's not to say, well, this is just like an idiot's guide to how to do life. Let's not oversimplify things. What God is trying to do is the ultimate miracle, to change a human heart. And that's what makes the Bible so hugely valuable to us. That's why the stuff that the Spirit inspired to those um, authors is so hugely important to us. He's going to bring our hearts alive to joy again, bring our hearts alive to courage again, bring our hearts alive to hope in the face of hardship, bring our hearts alive to generosity in the face of lack, bring our hearts alive to faith again. He's trying to make our hearts more like His heart through the Scriptures. So... We're going to have to dig a little deeper and do a little more work than just to say, well, I just do what Jesus would do, or I just do what the Bible says. Because just to put the final nail in that way of thinking, Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for everything. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and to gather them which is something that we all wonder whether we should or shouldn't do daily. Um, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, to give up, to keep, to throw away, to tear, to mend, to be silent, to speak, to love, to hate. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. So if you just do what the Bible says, you basically do everything. That, that, there's, there's more to it than just, well, I, I just do what the Bible says. Okay, so how do we actually decide things? How do you make the decisions you make at the moment? Let's sort of analyze how our decision-making processes work right now before going to God to say, well, please help us uh, to do our decision-making a little bit better. And the first thing I want you to know is that you decide with your heart. You are following your heart already, regardless. I've got a little slide that's going to help you keep track of where we're going today um, because we're covering a fair amount of ground. um, And when we're trying to cover a fair amount of ground, I tend to speak faster. I have two things to say to that. Firstly, if you're listening on the podcast, there's a feature on Apple where you can play the thing at 75% of the speed. I will sound a little dumb, but it'll make it easier to follow. If you're here live and you want me to slow down, then you need to stand up, make a chicken noise, and act like you're running fast. Um, No, it's not going to have to cost you that much. We welcome your feedback here. Um, And so you're welcome to just wave at me and go, whoa, slow down. But I also thought this might just help us to figure out where we are. So I feel less pressure to get through this. You already follow your heart. You do. And I don't mean in the simple heart versus head. Many of us 
understand that you can make decisions in a kind of emotive gut way, or you can make decisions in a more rational way, regardless, you're still deciding with your heart. Because when I use the word heart, I'm using it in the biblical sense, which is it's your deep beliefs, your deepest thinking, the center of yourself, where your assumptions are, where your values are, where your memories are, where the lenses that you view through the world through are seated. And you are deciding through that lens all the time. Here's an example. If you're a parent, you've already worked out where the plug points are in this room and made decisions about them. If you're not a parent, you don't know where the plug points are in this room. If you're single, you already have figured out vaguely who else in this room is single. If you're married, you've not seen that. We are making decisions based on what we're seeing, and what we're seeing, we're filtering through the lens of our heart all the time. If you've got some big area of stress in your life, it's because you're seeing certain things, and as you become more stressed about it, those things become vivid to you. That's almost all you can see. Others of us who aren't bothered with that question, who aren't stressed by that thing, are probably oblivious to half the stuff you're seeing. Your brain is filtering information all the time, which means that any decision-making we do, the problem to be decided about only turns up when our heart decides we should notice it, and then the decision we're going to make Regarding that issue, we're going to decide based on our filters and lenses and values and beliefs. We'll get into more of that detail in just a second. But as a sort of side note, this filtering thing that your brain is doing all the time, I think it is one of the most helpful explanations for why God can sometimes be hard to spot. I don't know about you, and I hope I don't get you into more doubt than you were in, but I sometimes sit there wondering, if God is so big and so powerful and so desperate to speak to me, why is he so hard to notice? Why does this world seem natural to the naked eye most of the time? Could it be that because your brain is constantly filtering out, I don't know, 70, 80% of the information it's receiving, it's not that God's not speaking to you. In fact, it's not even that you're not hearing God. It's that your brain is going, oh, that's not important right now. That's not really that interesting right now. This planet that we live in, we've made it so noisy, so overstimulating. We're filtering out stuff all the time. During the course of this morning, over the last half hour that you've been here, various people have looked at you. While you're sitting in your chair right now, people have looked at you. And your peripheral vision knows that they have. But because that falls within accepted parameters, because they haven't looked at you for too long or with too much of a weird look on their face, your brain has gone not important and decided you know how to react to that. But if someone was to stare at you for a while, someone down the row from you right now was just to look at you, no expression, big eyes like a serial killer, you know, like those freaks that sit in coffee shops without a laptop or phone in front of them, just drinking coffee like an absolute psychopath. Um, if someone was to stare at you for long enough, your brain would start going, whoa, that's outside of the normal parameters. That's a bit of a threat. And then, as you sort of notice them, maybe make a little eye contact, do whatever socially acceptable thing to try and say, stop looking at me. If they kept looking at you, your stress levels would rise to the point where your ears might be registering the words I'm saying, but you cannot hear me because this thing is dominating your attention. Could it be that in this overstimulating planet of ours, it's not that God's not speaking to you, it's not that you're not hearing him, it's that your brain is going, not interesting, not relevant, not important right now, too complicated, I don't have a preset box to put that spiritual information in, so I'm just going to ignore it for the time being. You are making decisions all the time. You don't even know that you're making them. And your heart, your memories, your preset assumptions and agendas, your beliefs 
are the filter that decides what gets in, and then they're the filter that you apply to making those decisions. And what is the sort of ultimate variable that your heart is using to decide whether something is worthy of your attention or not? Point number two on that slide, it's pain. Pain is the thing that your heart is most interested in. This is the thing that guides whether you notice stuff or not. So pain is really helpful. Uh, It's a wonderful thing. It allows us to avoid getting ourselves into trouble. God gives you your ability to recognize pain in order to get you out of situations that might lead to death. But once you get above the, you know, sort of knee height, um, or you, you for the most part, you're not really trying to navigate physical pain. You've kind of mastered balance, and you've mastered your physical environment, probably to the point where you're not you know, going to fall over and hit your head all the time or touch hot plates for too long. So the pain that we are generally trying to navigate away from or to mitigate is slightly more complicated pain than that. So your whole goal in life, as far as your heart is concerned, is to get you out of pain and get you some relief. And if possible, hail Mary from time to time some pleasure. And so in the case of your connections with other people, and this is what we'll be speaking about in the next relationship series quite a lot. There's the pain of loneliness, and your heart notices that and goes, well, I need to do whatever it takes to get away from this. So when, when there are unacceptable levels of loneliness, when you start to notice that you're really quite disconnected, your brain starts flagging that. Now, that's really important. That look that person gave me, that length of time between when the ticks on WhatsApp went from gray to blue, you start becoming really sensitized to that area of pain and doing whatever it takes to find some relief. And at that point, you start to notice, apply your mind to make some decisions. And then, holy of holies, if you can get beyond just the sort of relief of belonging to the glory of intimacy with some people, that's the pleasure we're aiming at. So your heart is filtering pain drawing your attention to what normally you would be making decisions about because you start to sense, actually, I don't belong here. People don't like me. I'm not known. That starts to feel excruciating. We start applying our minds to doing something about it. The same would apply to chaos. Stress is pain, isn't it? And stress is that feeling of, I don't have things under control. I'm not quite able to, to stay on top of what's required of me. And as that stress gets extreme, you start to notice it and try to make plans to bring some order and some peace back to chaos, to do whatever it takes to get hold of some control again. We're desperate for control all the time. And glory of glories, we would hope at some point to be able to get occasionally to mastery and that sense of flow in certain areas. The same applies to all sorts of stuff, I guess. Um, But what your heart is doing for the sake of time is noticing pain and mostly filtering it out. Okay, I know how to navigate that. I know how to navigate that. And occasionally, when the serial killer is looking at you down the row in church and it starts to feel beyond normal levels, you notice it, apply your mind, make some decisions. Pain is tricky, though. So pain is helpful because most of the time it allows our hearts to make decisions, but pain can be tricked. This is the frustrating thing. In fact, you might already start to notice this, that if my heart is filled with my past experiences and agendas, and I've been hurt by someone or let down, you know how this works. You become so much more sensitized to that same thing. And you're feeling pain when, in fact, it's not legitimate to feel just yet. Don't you? And you start to notice stuff and read motives into things and read agendas into things that often aren't there. But because of my operating system, my former set of filters, I'm seeing stuff 
that may not necessarily be there. And then you create these self-fulfilling prophecies. So pain can be really helpful. Pain can be really frustrating because it's so subjective. And it's of all the things that you're filtering the whole time and swipe left, swipe right, no, I don't need to know that. Yeah, I do need to know that. Stick nice emojis on those experiences. Ooh, stick horrible emojis on those experiences. Pay attention. Sometimes we end up misunderstanding stuff. So, so pain is not objective. It can be tricked. It can lie to you, which starts to make the foundation for our decision-making a little wobbly. Pain is also, when it gets excruciating enough, really bad for being creative, really bad for making good decisions. So as the discomfort, all the stress, all the whatever rises high enough and you're noticing this is a problem and now you want to make some good decisions to solve it, if you're feeling very stressed about it, you're probably just going to reach straight back to the last thing that worked and apply it without any thought. This is what we do. And so not only is our heart of hearts not always helping us to notice what's really important, our heart of hearts is also sometimes lying to us about that, flagging the wrong things, and then diminishing our ability to make good decisions as we get more and more stressed. Okay, so this is how we make decisions. The pain or problem emerges. There's a little five-step thing behind me. We then start to gather information, which for the most part is we ask our best mate what they think, we ask Siri maybe what she thinks, or some celebrity. We then apply, well, we'll test our plan if we're going to be thorough about it, but testing our plan really just uses our imagination. So once again, really subjective, uh, and you'll probably play it out um, in, in the worst possible case scenario, really dramatic, not necessarily actually based on the truth of how the world works. Then make your decision, and then you evaluate. Um, and. This is not like checking your work on the exam. We are evaluating all the time. We are judging other people's decisions and our decisions all the time. And just as a small bugbear, we are so interested in outcomes and so ignorant of intentions that mostly we're judging stuff based on outcomes. Let me give you an example. Your children are making decisions if you're parents, and they're deciding whether they should or shouldn't do this thing. And if your kid does something naughty or bad that normally you'd be upset about, but because of just blind good luck, they don't hurt anyone or they don't break anything, and in the process they look quite cute, your natural reaction, because disciplining actually takes quite a lot of discipline, will often be to laugh. Ha, ah, it was cute. Because we're evaluating on outcomes, which is daft, because the next time that child does the same thing and has the bad luck to actually hurt someone or actually break someone, because it was the same intention, now they're getting in trouble. Or flick that another way. They do something that is purely innocent. It's not a problem. You don't mind the intention. But they have the bad luck to have hurt someone or broken something. And they get the big scowl and the big shout. Right? And you can see that that's bad parenting. That's going to be inconsistent. And yet we do that to ourselves and to others all the time. We're judging on outcomes when we should be judging on intentions. Have I actually filtered correctly? Did I apply the right values to this decision? And so as we move forward into the little tail end of this preach, if we are going to get better at decisions, here's what you should not be asking. You should not be asking yourself, how do I make better decisions? It's a dumb question to ask. How do I get better outcomes? You can't control most of the variables. The question we should be asking is, how do I bring a better me to the decision-making process? That's the thing that we should be paying attention to. How do I bring better assumptions? How do I bring better value systems? How do I bring better filters to my decision-making process? Because God will work all things together for the good of those he loves. You can't control most of the variables. You can't control yourself. And so in the last little bit, we're going to look at 
how this heart of ours needs to be rewired so that we are more likely to make better decisions more of the time, knowing that you can't control everything. And in fact, trying to control everything would be the beginning of a nervous breakdown for you. And the sooner you stop trying to do that, the better. Okay, so where we are now is the kind of heart you're designed to have. And we're going to look and have some fun with the kind of heart you're designed to have, knowing that as we allow that heart to be the thing that is filtering for us, we will start flagging some things that should be flagged and maybe not flagging things quite so loudly and terrifyingly as we currently flag them and having a better set of filters and values to make our decisions by. Happy with where we are? Do you want to think back up? Okay, so this is what your heart is designed to be like. First and foremost, your heart was designed to be addicted to, passionate about, really interested in someone totally other than yourself. It just has to be said because we live for our own glory as a default. You were not designed to live for your own glory. It's the worst thing you can do. You are consistently going against your design. You are consistently paddling upstream if you're living for your own glory, as natural as that often seems, as commonplace as that often seems. You are not supposed to be the star in your own show. You are not supposed to be the most interesting person you know. Someone else is supposed to be. And that person is your father who created you for his glory, Not because he's an egomaniac, because he is actually glorious. So it makes sense to live for his glory. You're not actually glorious. So it's dumb to live for your glory. Or the best you'll ever achieve is Trump Tower, and everyone's going to hate that once you're gone anyway. Your glory is not really worth that much. And so just to prove this to you, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Ephesians 1, 11, Paul is speaking about the fact that He and the early church were chosen in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might live for the praise of his glory. You were designed to live for the glory of God. And this is such good news. Because if you were to just take a chance on this being true and start to live to give him glory, so much starts to click into place. Your heart will sing because that was what it was designed to live on. And so much of the filtering of that's not interesting, that's not important, I'm going to judge based on this, I'm going to decide based on that, We're getting it wrong because we're deciding based on what's best for us and our glory, which means that your programming is faulty from the beginning. What chance do you have of making good decisions when you're starting off the wrong foot? When you start off the foot of, I was designed to live for the glory of one who is truly glorious, you have a much better chance of bringing a good you to the decision-making process. And let's be clear, this is not just about external behaviors. Once again, judging outcomes versus judging intentions. It's quite complicated to start weighing up, should I do this or shouldn't I, based on how much glory God will get in other people's minds. It's tricky to know what other people are going to think of what you've done. It's almost impossible to control those variables. If I do this or don't do this, is this likely to make person X glorify God more or less, I don't know, I'm not really sure, and what about them, and what about the person who I'm not even aware is watching me, will this give God more glory? It's great if what you do can give God glory, if they see your good works and praise your Father in heaven, as Jesus said, but as a starting point, that's just an uncomputable equation. You can't be sure if what you're going to do is going to give God the most glory in everyone's mind as they watch what you're doing. And it gives you millions of loopholes, really bad loopholes. So here's what you do know. Man judges the outside, God judges the heart. And in your heart of hearts, if we reduce it to simple, if I apply for this or don't apply for this, am I giving God more or less glory as I do so? If I post this or don't post this, if I pick that fight or don't pick that fight, 
If I tell this story or don't tell this story, if I make that deal or don't make that deal, if I hold on to that hurt or don't hold on to that hurt, if I avoid this conversation or have this hard conversation, which is giving my father more glory? And you can tell pretty quickly. And so that's point number one, that our decision-making hearts are designed to think along the lines of, I want to give the glorious one glory. The next step is not just to have a heart that longs to glorify God, but actually, thrillingly, is to have a heart that starts to resemble God. And the amazing news is that if you've put your faith in Jesus, supernaturally, you already have a good heart. Supernaturally, something's already started to change inside you. You're not filthy and broken and sinful inside. The church should not be telling you that. You've got a good heart. You've got a new heart that wants to resemble God's heart. Listen to some of these instructions that God gives us for how to live. These are just a few of my favorites. There are others, but they all have something similar in common. Micah 6 verse 8. This is just a wonderful, if you want to have a filter for what your heart should be after. He's shown you, O mortal man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's a strange set of instructions, particularly the middle one. So so act justly, okay, that sounds like an instruction to do the right thing. Love mercy. How can you give someone an instruction for what to love? It doesn't say act justly and be merciful. You could figure that out. It says love mercy. God is saying, yeah, you should do what's right. You should also love what's good. You should desire what's good. What he's talking about here is beyond the realm of mere instruction. I simply cannot tell one person in this church to love another person in this church. It's not a thing that you can just flick a switch. It's something that has to happen from within. And God is saying, how you ought to live is, yeah, of course, act justly, do what's right. But actually, you should love what's good. And that's going to require some reprogramming. And the clue to how that works is in the final instruction and walk humbly with your God. Work out that there is someone who gets to set what is just and there is someone who gets to set what is good and it's not you. It's someone else and as you figure that out and walk humbly with him you will start to love what is good and choose to do what is right. Your heart is not just supposed to want to give God glory. Your heart is supposed to start to resemble God's heart. That's the thrill of the Christian life. And as you want the glory of God and start to resemble the heart of God, you start to become godly. You start to have the right sets of filters and frameworks to decide. We're running out of time. I'd love to tell you some stories out of Scripture of how godliness sets you up to make great decisions. There's these fascinating stories of of King David, for example, who has plans, he wants to do things, and Nathan the prophet says, do what's in your heart. Jonathan, David's good friend, is wondering about whether he should attack some people. He's not even sure if God's in it. He literally says, well, perhaps God will be with us if we do this. And his armor bearer says, do what's in your heart. There's this idea that as your heart gets changed to desire the glory of God and start to resemble God, you don't need things written on the wall. You don't need someone to hold your hand. You don't need micromanagement instructions from God. You can actually start to back that God has given you a good heart. And it's changed to the point where now it's okay to just say, do what's in your heart as opposed to second guess, check, make sure, wait to hear. We don't have time to do all of that. But if that's part of the decision-making process, is allowing your heart to become godly, there's one other thing that I just want to zoom in on of the many things we could talk about. And it's a heart that's open to counsel from others. This will take a minute or two, and then we'll be done. But this is where we are at the end. That if you're to make 
good decisions, if you to start filtering correctly and attributing pain in the correct places and not attributing pain to places that are actually subjective and are going to frustrate what God is trying to do in you, then we need to have hearts that are connected to other godly people who can help us to see stuff. And we're so individualistic. We hate this idea, most of us. And the place that we do look for wise counsel is often at the point where you know, we're starting to struggle a little bit, and I actually want to abdicate responsibility slightly and just do this democratically. Oh, this decision is hard to make, so let me just poll four of my closest friends and just go with what they say I should do. No, that's irresponsible. You're not designed to live your life as a democracy. But you are called to live in community, open to others who are able to sometimes flag pain that you're not feeling. In fact, I think this is one of the most helpful things that wise counsel can do in my life, is actually to make me feel pain I should be feeling, but I'm not. There are people in your life who have a measure of godliness in some areas that you don't yet have, who are seeing things in a, from God's perspective, who are filtering things in a certain area maybe better than you're filtering them. And what a pleasure if those folks were actually able to say, hey, that, the way you're spending your time or the way you're using your words or the way you're reacting to problems, that doesn't really accord with the good heart that God has given you. You're acting against your godly nature. That's not marrying and actually should start to cause some pain. Flip, I'm doing some things that go against the person I want to be. I better start to make some decisions about this. Whereas without that godly wise counsel, you wouldn't have felt the pain. You'd have blazed straight on making that same little small decision without noticing it until 10 years from now you realize that you've done yourself some damage, broken some relationships. Are you getting the feel that actually your best friends should cause you some pain? In fact, Scripture says that wounds from a friend can be trusted. The idea that our best friends should flag some stuff and actually cause discomfort where our filtering systems are letting us down and we're blocking things out that are really important. Of course, on the other extreme, there's some stuff that might be stressing you out and giving you pain that wise counsel should say, I don't think you're seeing that right. That, that look didn't mean that. <laughs> that lack of two blue ticks on WhatsApp for the extra five minutes probably didn't mean what you think it meant. Like, just wind your neck in. There's no need to feel pain in that area right now. You are bringing your lenses. And wise counsel is not just in the form of Christians. It's in the form of the Holy Spirit, the ultimate counselor. And this is where scripture is so helpful. Where as we expose ourselves to the word of God and his heart becomes clear and our heart becomes clear, that also starts to help us get a little closer to the truth of how things really are. A few sort of final ideas on wise counsel. This is why I think it's a, I mean, this is just three out of 50 million, I may have exaggerated, scriptures that I could have used. Proverbs 12 verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 11, where there's no guidance, the people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. Proverbs 15, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. If I'm going to do decision-making right, I need to, and this is excruciating, particularly, I guess, if you're similar to me, it's, it, can be, it can feel inefficient and complicated to involve people in your life as unpleasant as that must make me sound. Um, it's just like, it's inefficient. I'd rather just, me and God, just figure this out. But if there aren't people in your life who are able to actually cause you pain when you currently think something's not important, or, or alleviate some pain and say, actually, that's not that important when you think it really is, if you don't have the, that wise counsel in your life, you are likely to end up being what Scripture calls, and the technical term is, a fool. 
you're likely to end up thinking your plan is right and not knowing that actually your plan is wrong, that your decision-making is right when, in fact, you're deciding about the wrong stuff altogether. And so as we close this, this is not to say that this becomes a democracy. You are still the one that has to decide. But to get you out of your head, so much of the testing we do, as I said, it's just by using our imagination and our subjective past experiences. What if you had a community around you where you say, I'm thinking of doing this. And they go, okay, so... What, is, what, what do you feel like God's heart on that issue is? What, are there any scriptures you've read that have helped you to get an idea of how God feels about this issue? Have you analyzed what agendas and past pains you might be bringing to this decision? Have you figured out if this is really for God's glory or yours? Just to ask you some of those hard questions and start to go, oh, okay, that's a good testing process. That's going to set me up to make good decisions. That's the kind of community I want to be in. And it's inefficient and frustrating, and you've got to turn up at life group during the week, and you've got to let people know details about your life that take time to explain, and of course it's annoying. But making bad decisions consistently for the rest of your life is worse. And God has called us to live in this way. So let's, let's close in prayer and ask God to do this change of heart in us. Lord, we want to live for your glory. And I know... I want to be more godly in the way I see the world, filter things, and make decisions. And I suspect all of these people here here this morning want to make more godly decisions, want to live more godly lives, want to have hearts that start to resemble yours. Thank you so much that you have made it possible to change a human heart, that Jesus, you died on the cross and rose again to defeat the power of sin so that our hearts can be changed, our hearts of stone, our selfish, stiff-necked hearts can be melted and turned into soft, malleable ones that you can work with. And where there are hard hearts in this room right now, selfish, individualistic hearts, hurt, brittle, protective hearts, (coughs) Lord, would you just thaw them? Would you come and Win us over. Come and shower us with your love so that we can trust you to go to work inside us. Even as we sleep, that you would be realigning priorities, doing some deep healing, and giving us new lenses to look at the world with. And as you do that, Lord, we commit ourselves to seeking you, seeking your glory, chasing you down, wanting to resemble you more. And I thank you, God, that as we look ahead, if we are a people who live in that way, the blessing and goodness that will flow out of our lives will be so, such food, such nourishment to the people around us that your kingdom will advance. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name. Amen.